This is Pursuing Justice, and officially the first podcast of the new year, 2023. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Today, we are especially honored and pleased to welcome Professor Margaret Burnham with us to talk about her new book, By Hands Not Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. Before we delve into this riveting book, I want to express my thanks to Lisa Pally, who sent me a copy and helped arrange the interview. Lisa is a key player in the annual Miami Book Fair. The fair attracts thousands, writers from all over the world and eager book lovers who attend and have done so for 39 years. Professor Burnham teaches law at Northeastern University in Boston, and she's the founder and director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern. Formerly a civil rights lawyer, defense attorney, and a judge, she was nominated by President Biden to serve on the Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board. Thank you for spending time with us today, and welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ms. Hendel. And I also thank Lisa for recommending me to you and for the Miami Book Festival for giving me an opportunity to uh, meet lots of wonderful writers and to present my own work. That's great. Wonderful. Let me begin by saying I was truly shocked and horrified by each and every case that you cite in this book. Your book was an outgrowth of a project that began in 2007. You and your research partner, Melissa Nobles, created a database of racial violence incidents occurring between 1920 and 1960 in the Deep South during the Jim Crow era, you uncovered over 1,000 incidents. Now that I've set the stage, please tell us more. Thank you. Yes, Professor Nobles and I began work on this project shortly after the Emmett Till bill uh, became an effective. Emmett Till um, law actually uh, went into effect. Uh, This is a federal law signed by President Bush in 2007, and it set the stage for a revisit of civil rights era cold cold cases, cases that should have but were not properly prosecuted during that period. We began with those cases, but we quickly appreciated that there were um, hundreds, if not a, not thousands, of cases that uh, would not fall under the purview of the uh, Emmett Till Act, but nevertheless required um, examination uh, and required uh, research uh, so that they could be uh, returned um, to to the page of history. Uh, and that's what took us to this earlier period, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Uh, and we began looking at cases where African-Americans had been victimized by uh, racial violence and where family members still had uh, intact and vivid um, memories of what had uh, occurred in their families and uh, had lived with these memories uh, without uh, the help of any uh, uh, any public authority uh, trying to sort out, uh, sort out the facts, uh, the true facts of of what transpired and who was responsible. And so it's a research project. 
um, that takes us into these areas where we uh, talk with family members, but as well, uh, the research, uh, the interviews that we get from family members uh, join with um, the documents that have been uh, uh, archived by federal and state and local authorities, uh, either judicial documents or investigative reports from um, state police authorities or others um, that help give us a fuller picture of uh, what, what happened. And obviously the third feature would be the newspaper articles, um, uh, both in the white press and in the black press of the contemporary contemporaneous newspaper articles that covered the cases. Okay. Well, we'll begin with one of so many. I wish we had so much time to go over more of these, but I, I've picked a few cases that really spoke to me. The case of Booker Spicely touched me, a case which took place in the year 1943, the year I was born, in Philadelphia, where I wasn't <laughs> born, Mr. Spicely was one of eight children and had enlisted in the Army. He was stationed at Camp Butner in North Carolina. What happened to Mr. Spicely? This is a, a representative case. You know, part of the challenge of history is to uh, give, uh, to provide examples uh, which are full and meaningful uh, in, you know, as, as examples, but they also have to exemplify something. They have to be typical in some way, uh, and they have to, uh, read the, they have to be truthful and typical. And so in the Spicely case, we were able to, uh, to put together a, a narrative um, that makes clear um, how both exceptional and typical this case actually was. Booker Spicely was born in a little small town in Virginia, Blackstone, Virginia. That's where his people come from. And the family, many of the family members migrated to Philadelphia, which is where he ultimately ended up and was there, from there um, entered the uh, U.S. Army. Uh, and as you say, stationed at Camp Butner. Um, this case uh, takes <clears throat> takes place um, in in uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Spicely is a soldier there, uh, and he is uh, on a Saturday night uh, going into town as soldiers did uh, here in going into Durham uh, to relax. And uh, he boards a bus, a city bus, but buses were segregated in Durham at this time. Uh, and uh, when a white soldier, also in uniform, these two men, one white, one black, were both in uniform, gets on the bus, Spicely is told to get out of his seat uh, and move back and make room for the white soldier, who is of his same rank. Um, this rankles Spicely, and he says so to the bus driver. Uh, he complains that uh, this isn't the practice where he comes from in Philadelphia. Words are passed between the bus driver. Spicely realizes maybe he's a step, uh, made a, taken a step too far in angering um, the person in authority, the white person in authority here, i.e., the bus driver. Uh, seeks to apologize, gets off the bus. As he gets off the bus, the bus driver follows him, and right there uh, on the streets of Durham, uh, shoots him to death. Uh, and um, and so ends Spicely's uh, life while the bus driver reboards and continues to drive uh, and complete his route. Um, the case is um, significant not be, not simply because uh, it's it's just so um, it's it's just so you know the facts are just so 
extraordinary in some way. I say it's typical and extraordinary at the same time, uh, but also because of the response of the service uh, in this case. In the Spicy case, what the, uh, the army could well have intervened uh, in what, would, what, what ended up to be a local proceeding against the bus driver ending in his acquittal. Uh, and the army certainly could have intervened uh, and uh, ensured that there was a proper uh, a prosecution here or otherwise uh, made it clear that they intended um, that their soldiers, their African-American soldiers who were traveling all over the uh, country, including the Jim Crow South, were able to move from place to place in safety. Rather than doing that, the Army sent a uh, local uh, researcher uh, to um, uh, Durham, African-American man, undercover, whose job was to tamp down African-American protest of the spicely killing, spicely slaying, as opposed to ensuring um, that the Army uh, protected all the other soldiers at, stationed at Camp Butner and elsewhere in the U.S. at the at, here at the outset of the war in 1942. Wow, um, two things took me aback as I I read. Um, number one, bus drivers in the South carried guns. I had absolutely no knowledge of that. And two, that black men wearing a United States Army uniform were threatening to whites um, because at that time people did not encounter a policeman, African-American policeman in uniform, firemen in uniform, judges in uniform. That concept, blacks wearing an Army uniform, would never have occurred to me. Can you expand on that bias a little bit? Yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, obviously, one of the um, uh, one of the issues in the Spicely case and in the other cases that I describe in the book, where African American soldiers are confronted uh, by white bus drivers, often with lethal force, or frequently with lethal force, um, part of it is just the resentment uh, of the white uh, drivers that um, that they are carrying. Uh, from place to place, African-Americans who are in uniform, the uniform, rec uh, you know, is an acknowledgement of their status, their mm -hmm. civic status, their civic engagement, their uh, ability uh, to fight and the contribution they're making to the war effort. By the way, in the Spicely case, I misspoke there, is, is July of 1944 that Spicely is killed. Oh. But these killings, these killings on buses occur from the very outset of the war, from the, from the run up to the war and all the way through uh, until the end of the war. And yes, um, uh, the bus driver uh, in the Spicy case and in these other cases are all armed and one could ask, well, why? Right. And obviously the bus drivers had to, someone had to enforce the Jim Crow uh, norm, the Jim Crow uh, criminal rules on buses. Uh, and that fell to um, the bus drivers who then in effect became police officers of Jim Crow on the bus. And so uh, any small incident on a bus, any small contest between a passenger, one who might be complaining about uh, having to sit in the back of the bus or having to pay in the front and then move to the back, whatever it is, um, could at any moment turn lethal uh, because the bus drivers 
uh, were armed as monitors of um, as monitors of the Jim Crow line. And now, as, as with respect to African Americans in uniform, uh, yes, this was unusual and uh, a point of contention all across the South. Because, um, as you point out, Harriet, uh, nobody else, uh, no one, no, uh, people were not accustomed to seeing African Americans. There were no police officers. There were no judges. Um, there, there, there were no very few postal uh, workers. Uh, in some of this, uh, some towns, uh, there were one or two uh, African American police officers who were restricted to uh, policing in the in African American communities. But for the for the large part, all across the 1930s and 1940s, which is not really that long ago, um, there were. Uh, no persons of authority and therefore no persons in uniform. So the soldiers in uniform presented a particular kind of, um, of um, uh, reality, a, a different reality when they traveled across the South, um, a different Negro, as it were, uh, not just the uniform, but the virility of these men, young men, the fact that they were coming from uh, some of them, you know, coming from a northern venues, and there was always this fear in the south of anyone. Um, Emmett Till is a great example of this. Anyone coming from up north and bringing up north um, ideas about race um, into their um, into their communities, closed communities. Yeah. You devote time to the fact that officers of the law. I mean. In a sense, you're saying so were the bus drivers, officers of the law in their own way. But we're talking now sheriffs and the police um, that they kill black citizens with impunity. You cite several cases from the 1940s. If you would talk about you can uh, pick and choose there the case of Walter Gunn, uh, Lewis Hatcher, Robert Hall or Willie Lee Davis. Many of the law enforcement officers claimed self-defense. How is that even possible when there was absolutely no provocation for that defense? These cases occurred in Alabama, Georgia, and other states in the South. And Sheriff Screws, I like that name, is one of these sheriffs. So tell us, you don't have to talk about all of them, but maybe there are a couple that you want to talk about. Yeah. Well, yes, all these cases are from the 1940s. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, these cases uh, exemplify uh, a number of uh, features of the legal system during this period of time. And at the end of the day, this book is about the legal system. It's a, an, uh, an effort to uh, give us a, a, a closer uh, scrutiny of a legal system that's very much part of the American legal system, uh, and, but, but that operated for the most part in the South. I'm not saying Jim Crow, the fe Jim Crow features were not uh, also prevalent in the North where people had trouble getting housing, et cetera. Uh, but I am really looking quite specifically um, at the South where um, the, the uh, legality of uh, Jim Crow affected the legal system in ways, uh, in lasting ways. And, uh, that, um, that and, and also I look here in these cases at the role of the federal government, the failure of the federal, federal government adequately to police uh, constitutional rights, the right to live, uh, the right to um, own property, uh, and so on in the Jim Crow South where African-Americans were concerned. And I, one of the examples that I give is this case of 
Uh, Walter Gunn, this is Tuskegee, 1942. Uh, Walter Gunn is uh, targeted by a African-American man, targeted by a police officer, excuse me, by a sheriff um, who has a reputation for brutality with respect to African-Americans and as well a reputation for violence with respect to um, white defendants as whites who come into his into his into uh, his police car and, and the jail as well. But here we're talking about a man who, uh, for whom the sheriff has a personal grudge, uh, and he chases him uh, into back into back to his home uh, from his place of work, and there, right in front of his uh, wife and his children, um, the sheriff. Uh, who has been elected and then re-elected and re-elected again, seems to be a perpetual office holder um, in uh, Macon County, uh, Macon County, Alabama, shoots Walter Gunn and kills him. I use this case uh, to, to more closely examine the federal role, because what happens in this case is that the federal government becomes involved. Uh, so outrageous was the shooting of Walter Gunn that a uh, that um, the sheriff, the mayor of the town and other white office holders insisted that there be a state prosecution. There was no forthcoming state prosecution, but the federal government stepped in, uh, and the prosecutor there, man by the name of Parker, took on the Walter Gunn case along with several others against the sheriff. The sheriff's name was Evans, and uh, tried. It was uh, United States versus Evans. Uh, and tried that case in federal court. Uh, it was the, it was one of it was for many years um, the last case this particular prosecutor would try that involved race in one of the most racist areas of the country, i.e., uh, the Middle District of Alabama. And that is because when he tried the case, the courtroom was filled with law enforcement officers. 300 strong from across the state of Alabama who came in to the courtroom to support the defendant as against the prosecutor and the local FBI agents who were trying um, the case before the federal court. And that so intimidated the jury and clearly so intimidated the prosecutor that uh, he wouldn't have a go at it again. And so the book really, you know, seeks, as, as I say, it seeks to open the door uh, into these offices, the police officers, uh, the, uh, the offices of the police, the sheriff, the prosecutor, to try to uh, discern what is going on in these offices that leaves um, the, uh, the federal courthouse door closed to African-Americans for so long. Uh, and what is the relationship between the federal government in Washington, the federal, the Justice Department in Washington, uh, and these local justice departments um, that have uh, that are uh, uh, leaving African-Americans without uh, federal and constitutional protection. Right. Um, the other men I mentioned, were, were any of those cases um, particularly outstanding to you, uh, similar to the Walter Gunn case? Equally important, if not more important, was the Robert Hall case. Mm -hmm. Robert Hall was a case out of Georgia that resulted in a very important Supreme Court decision, the Screws decision, U.S. versus Screws. Mm -hmm. Robert Hall was, um, again, uh, crossed a local sheriff. The sheriff's name was Screws. Uh, Baker, we're in ba Baker County, Georgia now. Uh, and uh, back in the civil rights days, we would call it Bad Baker. 
uh, terrible Terrell and bad Baker. Um, and so um, Screws was um, the autocrat who ran uh, Baker County. Uh, he arrested Hall on a trumped up charge, brought him down to the courthouse um, and beat him to death in front of the courthouse and at the courthouse um, with um, you know, uh, the neighbors all around uh, listening uh, to the beating. And the case makes its way up. Uh, this is Screws acting with several of his deputies. Uh, they're all charged under federal law, uh, convicted. And the case makes its way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has to determine uh, whether or not the charges, the federal charges, can stick against, um, against the Screws, Sheriff Screws. Uh, the federal government, fed, excuse me, the Supreme Court in this case decides um, that the evidence is not sufficient to warrant federal prosecution under the civil under the, the um, Civil War era uh, criminal statutes that were adopted uh, to address violence against African Americans both in the post Civil War era and thereafter. These statutes lay fallow until 1940. They were not used until the 1940s. And then the Screws case comes along and it basically strips all the muscle from these federal, from this federal statute, statutes called US Code 242. It strips the muscle from this federal statute. And, 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 and it's not, it's it basically, uh, it, it's uh, an impotent, becomes an impotent weapon uh, for those in the South uh, federal officers in the South who might be inclined to pursue these cases. It was not until the 1960s, so we're all across the 1940s, violence, you know, uh, uh, stretching across the 1940s into the 1950s. It's not really until the 1960s, in the latter period of the civil rights movement, um, that the statutes uh, bear fruit in a federal prosecution, uh, most importantly here in Mississippi, in the prosecution of the three Mississippi, uh, the um, the um, police officers who murdered, uh, tortured, and murdered um, the three Mississippi civil rights workers. Right. All right. Well, we are coming to the end of our um, time together, but you have agreed to come back and talk to us a little more. We barely covered you know, just the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, I'd like to just ask you quickly before we run out of time, uh, there was resistance coming from women uh, also, it wasn't only men, dating back to the mid-1940s. And the case of Mary White in Mobile, Alabama, what was her story? So one of the, uh, uh, one of the, surprises in the archive. We do this work, those historians, uh, I'm a legal historian, not, not a trained uh, historian, but we do this work um, with a view to uncovering material not otherwise available to the public. And for me, it was most amazing to find a file uh, at uh, our uh, National Archives in Washington titled The Negro Transportation File. Uh, which contained reports from army officials about uh, uh, issues uh, regarding uh, Jim Crow transportation on city buses. And the file, <clears throat> the file was designed to help um, the army monitor when there might be explosive situations on these buses and what they might do 
to respond. Uh, but in that file are a number of a number of reports of women's protest mm -hmm. against um, Jim Crow uh, Jim Crow segregation, including the story of Mary White, Mobile, Alabama, 1944. She boards a bus, and the rule down there in Mobile was you pay your if, if you're black, you got to board twice. You got to pay your fare in the front of the bus, then you got to get off the bus because you can't walk through the white section of the bus and get back on in the back of the bus to sit in the back. She pays her fare, and apparently she's a little slow getting off and moving to the back of the bus. The bus driver tells her, um, get off the bus, go to the back of the bus, re-enter at the back of the bus. And she turns around to do so, but as she turns around to do so, she calls him an SOB. <laughs> right. He gets off the bus, and he's picked up a uh, fire extinguisher, which is part of his equipment on the bus, and he knocks her down with the fire extinguisher before she can get on the back of the bus. So the file is really revealing not just of the, you know, the, the, the quiet resistance, the mm -hmm. resistance you may not get in traditional uh, accounts of marches and demonstrations and petitions, um, but uh, and, and, and it's generally women who are resisting in this fashion, uh, on the ground resistance, uh, but also of uh, the fact that they were, you know, equally subject to the kind of violence that you, we see in the uh, Burke Spicely and other cases. Right, right. All right, we have to wrap it up, but I'm delighted that you'll be back to continue our discussion of your incredible book. Uh, please join us next time on Pursuing Justice. And thanks for listening. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.